If you'd open your Bible to Romans chapter 8, is where we're going to be uh, living for uh, just a few weeks in, in Romans chapter 8 as we, as we move uh, through. And I want to make sure that, um, that while we're hitting the high points of Romans, that uh, if there is something that is particularly important, that we slow down. Now, it, it may be said, what would be of particular importance? Because it all feels pretty important. It is all important, um, but then there are some things that I feel just need a little bit more attention, and so we'll spend some time considering those. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read starting in verse 18, and I'm going to read to verse 30, and uh, so if you want to follow along in your Bible uh, or on your phone, you should do that, and um, we, will, uh, we will begin in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can come to your word and we can find something of significance. Lord, you don't have us searching for treasure in a book full of junk. Instead, when we dip into the Bible, when we read, when we study, when we seek to absorb, we are always dealing with good things. Things which are good for us, even if what we read at first sounds threatening to us or threatening to our identity. The words that we read lead to life. 
They lead to growth. They lead to joy because they point us to you. They point us to Jesus and they point us to your intent. They are your good and precious promises which are given to us. And so we say thank you. Father, as we focus our attention on just one thought in this passage, I pray that it would be of great encouragement to us. It is true that familiarity can breed contempt. And so we ask that, that if the... We ask that if our hearts have grown hard to some truth of your word and that we are resistant to hear it, we pray that you would bring us to life again regarding your truth. We pray that you would break down walls of resistance and that we would see what you say that is good and we would say that is good and we are thankful for it. And so we pray your blessing on this time in your word, and we ask that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine asked me to join a book club of, of people who were concerned about religious things. I keep getting a hiss, and so I'm just adjusting. Um, and uh, it was a book uh, of some people that I respect, and, but, but not necessarily a, a group of people that I would agree with theologically. We read a book uh, which I do not recommend. It was called uh, Genesis for Normal People, um, interestingly. And, and, and what, what happened in, in that passage, or in reading that book, was what, what the author was seeking to do was to take the book of Genesis and really to make it palatable to, palatable to the modern mind, to, to take all of the supernatural or all of the, um, the things that uh, we might have to take on faith and to reduce them to just a simple explanation of what the author of Genesis was trying to achieve, even though he knew what he was saying wasn't true. And sitting in that group several times, having read the book, uh, one, I felt very much like an outsider because I wasn't like, yay, this is so much fun to tear scripture apart. Uh, but what I, what I felt happened for many as they read the book, there was a draining and a twisting of things that they held dear. Um, now, I was thankful for uh, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Hulbert, who has gone home to be with the Lord. One of the assignments that we had in, in our intro to the Old Testament class was to take the book of Genesis, to take the first five books, and to go through them and to look for evidences for why we can believe that what is being presented there is true and factual. And so uh, after the first meeting, I was like, this is a little messed up. Like, I, 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 need to, I need to make sure that next time I go back to this book club, that I don't just go there as a spectator, but that I got my boxing gloves on, you know, like that I'm ready. And so I printed out my assignment that I had to do and then turn in uh, evidences for believing in the supernatural character of Genesis and, and the other first five books and evidences for the authorship of Moses in uh, those books. And so I would sit there during the discussion and they would say, oh, and then this passage is Genesis. And I would like flip, but then I'd move my notes onto that page and, and, and be ready to like fire back. And uh, eventually I realized like, I just, no, it wasn't gonna work with me in this club. Um, now, here's what I think can happen. 
Now, the New Testament has a tremendous promise in it, many promises in the New Testament. One of particular great value for Christians is Romans 8.28. What can happen over the course of a believer's life is they hit some trial or difficulty. Maybe it's a small one, right? A particularly difficult day, and they are then frustrated and angry, and maybe they give vent to their spirit, and some believers seeking to be helpful or knowledgeable or obnoxious or whatever will say, you know, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good, and we can develop a simplistic approach towards this promise. It can become cliche. It can be something that people trot out in the midst of the worst circumstances. Say, when a loved one dies, or there has been a horrible accident, or there is a, a situation that we view as uncertain. And Romans 8.28 can get a reputation of being unwelcome in these situations. And here's what I think happens. There is a subtle draining and twisting of this promise that can take place. And when we think of it, it is only associated with pain and with wrong and can cease to speak to us and do us good. Does that make sense? I want to do Romans 8.28 for normal people, right? Not for, not for folks who have developed a, a theology that, that says, uh, this doesn't apply in the midst of this difficult situation. Instead, what I'd like for us to, to accomplish uh, this morning and maybe next week as well is to say, this is good and something that we ought to move to regularly and say, yes, all things work together for good. Now, one of my heroes, I have him on a t-shirt, not Superman, although I do have a Superman t-shirt. I, I got a t-shirt my wife got me that has Thomas Watson, the Puritan, on it, right? You know, I'm the only guy I've ever seen in Salisbury walking around with a shirt with a Puritan on it. Um, and, uh, you know, routinely somebody would be like, who is that? You know, like, what's that all about? It's one thing to explain a Bible verse to someone. <laughs> But explaining why you're wearing a Puritan when all they think, Puritans, they think Salem witch trials. Right? Those were not the Puritans, by the way. Those were pilgrims and congregationalists, not Puritans. Puritans, mostly England. Anyway, um, Puritan Thomas Watson wrote an entire book about this verse. And, and, and the original title was A Divine Cordial, like a divine refreshment. And he said, Routine, refreshing stops at Romans 8.28 will encourage and help us. In his preface on this book, this is what he says. He says, there are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult as a pastor. The one is to make the wicked sad. The other is to make the godly joyful. Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring, right? Two sources, either because their inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts are disturbed. 
To cure both of these troubles, I have put forth this document, this book that he wrote, hoping by the blessing of God, it will buoy up their despairing hearts and make them look with a more pleasing aspect. Now, what is Thomas Watson saying here? He is saying that it is difficult to convince someone out in the world many times that they have a spiritual need. This is a difficult thing. It is also a difficult thing at times to convince a Christian who has lost their joy or their hope in the midst of a difficult situation. It can be a difficult thing to restore joy to them. And so what I would like to do is to take a look at this truth that nothing, nothing, no thing at all harms those who are called to Christ. But instead, to take a look and to dig into this verse in such a way that we will see that anything that occurs works operates for our good so that we will view difficult circumstances as good. That, that we will see things that we might see as immaterial or neutral as good and that when good actually occurs, we will say that is a blessing from God and not something that we have accomplished for ourselves or something that has accomplished, been accomplished randomly. Instead, we will say, this is good and it is from God, and I believe that will help our joy increase. I have to drink water or I will not be able to talk. Okay. All right. So let's, let's, let's take, a, take a look at what's going on here in Romans 8.28. The first thing that is said is that there is a certainty of this fact. Okay? A certainty of this fact. What Paul says is, we know, and we know. This is not something that is up for debate, okay? Now, I could ask you a question dealing with the data in this chapter, verse 26. I could say, do we know how to pray perfectly, right? And you would say, probably based on verse 26, that we do not know how to pray perfectly because Paul states it there as a fact. And many Christians are eager to embrace this because we struggle with our prayer life. And so we say, yes, this is, we see this as true, that, that we don't know how to pray perfectly. And then we take great comfort in the fact that the Spirit will pray with us. Isn't that encouraging? Yes, because we hear it, see it, and we believe it as a fact. Then Paul introduces another fact in verse 28. We know that this is true. We know that it's true. There are many things that we don't know. There are many things that we don't know. There are many areas of debate and struggle in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 13, I believe it is, says that we see through a glass darkly, right? We, can't, we, can, we can see shapes moving in certain areas of information. We're like, I think I understand what's being said here. I think I've got it figured it out. You know, there are some people who think that they see clearly, right? And then they, they start making all kinds of predictions about the end times. And they say, oh, definitely going to happen in 1997. I have a book that, that some author makes that claim. Here I am, right? Years and years later, you, you, you thought you saw, you didn't. We don't understand everything. 
But the Bible teaches us that there are things that we can know. 1 John 3, 14 says that we can know that we've passed from death to life. We can know that we're in a state of grace before the Lord. We can know that we will go to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. A promise that is good to read, particularly at times when we're in the midst of grief, perhaps at, at funerals. We know that if our earthly tent is dissolved or destroyed, we have a building that comes from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What a promise, right? If you're convinced that that's true, that you can know whether or not you are right before the Lord, and you can know that God has prepared a place for you, a body for you that will live forever, you can also know this, which is stated in the same way. This is a fact. We can know that all things work for good. Isn't that amazing? We can know that all things work for good. This is the glorious privilege of being a believer. This is an amazing fact. All things work together for our good. This is the design and plan of God. Now, I wish that I could walk out into the world. I wish that I could, could, could say it when I have an opportunity to speak publicly. I wish that I could go to the mall and just walk up to people and say, do you know that all things work together for your good? But there is a limitation on this. Okay? There are people who have a particular interest in this fact who can actually say, that applies to me. What is... John 1, 12, say, to any who received him, to any who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. The children of God because of his grace, the reality of a, of a connected relationship with him. There are people who may claim this verse because they saw it on a bumper sticker somewhere or on someone's mug, and they say, oh, all things work together for good, generally, right? No, not so. There are people who have a claim toward it. And those people have two descriptions in this passage. First, you'll see that it says, all things work together for good to those who love God, right? That is a, a, a human word focused, man word, is that the right way to say that? Let's just move on. They're, those who love God have a claim to it, but the second claim from God's perspective is this, that it is those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called. Who can know that all things work together for good? Those who say, I love God, and I know that I am in a state of grace before him. I know that, that I have been Saved. I know that, that he is for me. They can know that all things work together for good. Why don't things always look good to us then if everything is working for good? If everything's working for good, then there probably shouldn't be a time when we're like, why did this happen? And, and, and let's admit that, that maybe we don't always say it publicly. Maybe we don't... Maybe we don't always 
admit it. Maybe, maybe you um, aren't, aren't the kind of person who just says what they think all the time. And I say, thank God for that, that you don't say what you think all the time, you know, because if you did, you know, that would be bad. Everybody would be like talking right now. And, 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 and yeah, anyway, you know, there are times where internally we say, God, how is this good? How is this right here working for my good? But the good that we're called to is not a, a life of, of personal prosperity and peace from our perspective. Instead, the origin, the source, and the intent of the calling is that we are called according to God's purpose. God's purpose. That he is shaping us into what he desires. That he has a plan for us. Now, here is my purpose this morning. I'll take up the second piece of, of my purpose next week. But I believe that many times people break out Romans 8.28 in the midst of the hard times, right? In the midst of the, the bad times, that, that something difficult happens, and then we're told, well, you know, insert Romans 8.28. And we're like, "Some of that. Like, too soon, you know? Don't say that right now, you know? Don't write that in the card that you wrote me because something bad happened, you know? Like... You don't know what it's like to be me. And part of the, the difficulty is I think that we've not been prepped ahead of time to think through it. Do you know what I mean? We don't have our notes ready. We're not, we're not sitting in, in, that, in that spiritual group interacting. And when someone says Romans 8.28 to us, we're not like, oh, wait, look, I see the good that God has done toward me. I, I'm, I'm ready for this. I'm, I see God's goodness, and therefore I am willing to consider that something that I might think is bad is, can work for good. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'd like to take a look at an inventory of the goodness of God toward us, right? Uh, lest we uh, take up the attitude of, of Janet Jackson, who in the 80s sang, what have you done for me lately? She's telling this bad boy, get out of my life. Go away, you know. All you do is put your feet up on the couch, she says. She's like, I'm done with you. And she did it with, with dance. Um, we're going to use the Bible. Yeah, oh no, no, no. There will be no Janet Jackson dancing here this morning. Uh, let's take an inventory of the goodness of God toward us. Oh, now I'm feeling it. No, no. Okay, no, not going to do it. Uh, nope, 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 nope. Think of the, the goodness of God towards us. And let's, let's look at some of these uh, in, in relatively random order. One of the things that, that we see is that the scriptures speak about the fact that the angels work for the good of the saints. Okay? When, when, when considering the fact that Jesus is distinct from the angels and that he is higher than the angels... He, he talks about the crowning of Jesus, but then referring to the angels, uh, and this is not his main purpose to talk about angels, but instead to show the superiority of Jesus. He says this, that angels, Hebrews 1.14, are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. There are angels who God sends, yes, to preserve his order and carry out his purpose, but he's also like, hey, go serve my people, go take care of them. Psalm 91.11 shows this in the Old Testament, that God commanded his angels concerning us to guard us in all of our ways. God has sent an army to serve. Now, you might think, well, you know, is that, 
Is it always true? Are there always angels guarding me? If something bad happens, were there, were there not angels guarding me? What's up with that? One place in the scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, uh, the servant, I believe it is, of Elijah was nervous, anxious, worried about the fact that they had a small number of soldiers in the fortress and they were surrounded by an incredible force. And the prophet prayed and asked God to uncover the eyes of his servant and he saw a multitude of the heavenly host protecting. Listen, God has got angels upon angels, right? He's got more angels than we could possibly imagine. It doesn't matter how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's uh, the old theological question. There are tons of them. Scads of angels. There are angels, maybe, that, that serve other angels. I don't know. But there's a lot of them. And we don't have to worry that, like, ours was on a coffee break. Because that's not the way it works. The dignity of the believer is that he has God's name written upon him. This is what Jesus says in Revelation 3.12. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. 2 Timothy 1.14. And we have angels that attend us. That's good. When I said that I was, we were going to consider good, did you think we were going to go there and talk about angels? Maybe not. You know, it's a good, it's a good reminder. We also have the graces of the Holy Spirit working in us for good. Hebrews 13.9 says this, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What would Paul, or sorry, not Paul, Paul didn't write Hebrews. If you think he did, that's cool. Um, I think it's somebody else. Let's not get into a fight. He says, he says don't focus on, on weird theology that says that you can only eat, eat certain things. Instead, nourish and focus your heart on grace and be strengthened by grace. And one of the ways that we do this is to consider the grace of God toward us and the way that he has worked in our hearts. Thomas Watson says this, Faith and fear go hand in hand. Faith keeps the heart cheerful. Fear keeps the heart serious. Now, this is not the terrified, servile fear of, of one who is afraid of, of, a, of, a, of, a, or of a terrifying God who will destroy them, but instead the respect that we show to someone who has authority. Faith keeps the heart cheerful. Fear keeps the heart serious. Faith keeps the heart from sinking in despair. Fear keeps it from floating in presumption. He then says this, all the graces display themselves in their beauty. Hope is a helmet. Meekness is an ornament. Love is a bond that demonstrates perfectness. Our graces are weapons to defend ourselves. This is when, when somebody says to you, you're such a kind person. You're an encouraging person. Wow, you've got a real gift there. You know, I find you to be so even-tempered. You always know the right thing to say. You know what that is? That's an evidence that God's spirit is working in you and it is working through you and that God is achieving good in the lives of others. And that's a good given to you by God. And we ought to be thankful for it. Let's think about God himself and his attributes, how they work 
for us. Have you thought about that? That, that God himself has qualities and characteristics that support you and that work for you and that they work good toward you. God's power actively supports those who he calls to himself. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, they hadn't had a snack in a while, right? As is evidenced by the fact that the very next day, uh, a bunch of other guys get thrown in there and they get eaten inside of like 10 seconds, right? No, it is God, according to the book of Hebrews and the book of Daniel, who shuts the mouth of lions. The power of God supported the children of Israel in the wilderness. He gave them food to eat for 40 years. When they crossed over the Jordan to enter the promised land, it says that, their, that the manna ceased didn't come down anymore. God's power supported them. He worked for them and he protected them and his power works for you. God's wisdom works for our good. God is infinitely wise, but he is not stingy and he gives knowledge and wisdom to any who ask him. That's what the book of James says, that God will give what we ask for. Think of the very name of Messiah. We refer to these verses often around Christmas time, but think about them right now. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor in our Savior. And by the power of the Spirit, the, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace is also a wonderful counselor to us. And so think of the goodness of wisdom. Have you ever had that, 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 that situation where you have, you have a difficult decision to make? You have, you have something hard to think through, and in the midst of the debate, you think of some passage of Scripture. And I don't mean a passage of Scripture that justifies bad behavior. I mean that, that you just know that you know that this is the will of God for this situation, and you are comforted and encouraged by this passage because you know that the Spirit is speaking to you. He supports and cares for you. God's wisdom is at work in your life. The goodness of God works for good to the godly. Romans 2.4 says this, that the kindness of God leads us to what? Repentance. Think about that. I often think that it is the discipline of God that leads me to repentance. It's when I run smack into my circumstances that I then say, oh, I need to turn up and, and turn around and straighten up and, and get everything neat and in order. Instead, how many of us have had the experience where we're, we're singing in worship or we are, we are considering the scripture in our own personal time. This often, often happens to me when I prep to preach, is I will just become overwhelmed with the goodness of God toward me. And that is what moves me to devotion and repentance. Not the possibility of a loss of benefits, or the fact that God is angry, but instead the fact that he is persistently, constantly kind and gracious to me, makes me ashamed of when I'm not thankful for him. It's his kindness that often leads us to repentance. And think of the many blessings that God 
gives. There are the common blessings. All people partake of these. The bad as well as the good. Yeah, there may have been a lot of rain, but think about it, right? The corn is out there in the field, sucking up all that rain and getting sweet and ready to be put on your table. And everyone can enjoy that. That's a common blessing from God. God is always supporting and sustaining the creation, right? Making stuff grow, making the earth spin, putting the sun to bed, raising the moon. Like all that stuff is all functioning by his power and all people get to benefit from it. And then there are what Thomas Watson calls crowning blessings, the common blessings and the crowning blessings that only those who are part of this promise partake of. Psalm 103 verse 4 says that God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. His attributes, his character, who he is, means that when the gospel takes root in our life, that there is a kind of coronation, that that we are given things, that the crown moves from his hands to our head and becomes something that we are entitled to. Okay? Now, don't get all entitled and start acting with presumption, but instead, think about this. that The promise is that to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. We have been given certain blessings by God that we can say, I stand in the goodness of those blessings, and I do not fear them being removed. Not a focus on my character or my worth of those blessings, but on his gracious giving them to me. That is amazing. Yes. The promises of God work for our good. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says that we have been given many good, precious promises by God. This book is full of amazing promises to the believer that are always active and ready and relevant for our lives. Are you in the midst of trouble and difficulty in your life? Psalm 91 verse 15 says this, When he calls to me, I will answer him. If we call, he will answer He says, I will be him, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. That makes me think of that young boy who asked his father for an inheritance and he wandered off and he wasted the whole thing. He became aware of his situation and he went back to the father. You ever notice when you read the parable of the prodigal son that his speech that he prepares is, um, Father, I've sinned against you. Make me as one of your hired servants. When he gets home, that's not what he says to his father. Right? His father shows him grace and acceptance and welcomes him and receives him back and honors this dishonorable young man. And at this point, I think the son is like, Why would I accept a demotion, right? You know, like when the father seems ready and willing to show me grace and kindness, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. That's a promise from God for you. Have you been defiled by your own sin and stupidity? 
Hosea 14.4. By the way, I identify with this. I'm not like, oh, it's just you. It's not me. Hosea 14.4, God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. The work of Christ means that God's anger toward sin has a target. Jesus has received it. It has been covered. And that means that when we experience a time where we wander from Christ and, and we, we, we are far away and we say, will he still love me? He says, I will heal you from that. Older versions say from their backsliding. Are you under conviction of guilt for your sin? Psalm 103, verse 8, points to the attributes of God where it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thinking again of, of the kindness of God and his mercy, God's mercy works for good to those who are called according to his purpose. The mercies of God rightly understood, humble. They do not make us proud. David was told, this is back during David's good phase, before he, he made some, some serious mistakes, but don't let that undermine the effect of God's mercies as you, as you hear them. Uh, David was told that, that God didn't want him to build a house for him. Instead, God would build a house for David. And then he gives him this amazing promise that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, would come through David's line. And there would never be someone lacking from sitting on David's throne. That, that, that Abraham had begun the course of bringing Messiah into the world. And that that, 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 that line had descended and, and had moved through history. But now the line was going to move through David's family. David could have reacted with tremendous pride and said, I'm the man, Messiah's coming through me, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Instead, the mercy of God and the kindness of God toward him had a humbling effect. 2 Samuel 7.18 says, David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I and what is my house that you've brought me this far, thus far? The mercies of God, I've already said this, have a melting influence on the soul, on the hardness of the heart. The heart softens in response to the mercy of God. The son, far from the father, feeding the pigs, considered the difficulty of his situation, and he said, I will go back to my father. How often do we turn back to the Lord and we suddenly remember all of the, the goodness and kindness that he shows toward us and, and our hearts, far from being elevated or presumptuous, instead melt with gratitude. The mercies of God make us thankful. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The mercies of God also make us compassionate. Far from feeling superior to others, far from feeling like he had received something that made him superior and made him better and made him exclusive, when the Apostle Paul considered the implications of the gospel, he did not 
think of himself as better. Instead, he said, I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to Jews and to Gentiles, to preach the gospel to them. He was given a blessing. And instead of walking around saying, I'm blessed and I'm better, he saw that blessing as a motivator to be compassionate and to share with others. We've been given the word of God to direct our paths, and that is evidence of God's mercy. We have been invited into God's presence to pray, and we've already talked about the fact that the Bible says that we don't know how to pray as we ought. Right? You know? Think about it. Your, your first prayer as a Christian, God could be like, nope, wrong. And then you're like, let me try again. Nope. Let me try again. Nope. Let me try again. No. Wrong. Instead, we come to the Lord and we say, Father, help me. And the Holy Spirit's like, right, and, and translates it to the Father for us. We'll see that there's someone else praying for us too in just a moment, and that's another, another mercy. But, but prayer is a gift to us. Even though we can't fulfill it perfectly or properly, the Lord is with us. There are so many mercies of God shown to us. So many ways in which he lowers himself. Not by leaving behind his holiness, not by lowering his standards, but instead he understands and knows our limitations. And because he is kind and good and loving, he says, go ahead and speak to me. Go ahead and lay hold of my promises. It's evidence of his grace and kindness. The fellowship of believers works for our good. Who can survive in the Christian life without good Christian friends? Who can, can survive the Christian life without some good Christian counselors or leaders who will come alongside them? And I don't just mean formal church officers or the pastor. I mean, we've got that Christian friend who, when we try to send out some cloud to obscure the real issue we're struggling with, they come along with that razor, right? And they just cut through the whole thing and they're like, I think it's really this. And then we have the opportunity to say, no, no, it's not, and lie to them or to say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not. That's a blessing. It is a blessing to have good Christian co-laborers alongside of you so that when you say, I think the Lord's calling me to do this, they don't, always, they don't necessarily even say, that's a good idea, you should go do that. They say, I will help you. I'm excited about that. Paul saw this as the posture of that entire group of apostles who were out there planting the church everywhere. He says this to the Corinthians. He says, we don't lord it over your faith. Right? He didn't see himself as the boss man of all the Christians who was like, hey, you're not doing this right. Fix this, fix that. You're a failure. No, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Working together. And so God has put people into our lives to, to remind us 
of his goodness and the goodness of his promises. And, and we can get so narrow-minded in our view towards life, and then we're sitting in a Bible study, or we're talking to somebody on the phone, or we're texting, or we're emailing, or whatever, and they speak the word back to us, and we suddenly realize how limited our perspective is without other people to speak into our life, and we're thankful. This is why in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, you're going to feel so good that you came to church this morning. It says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, right? Don't just throw those eggs in that pan. The eggs aren't going to be seen. You've got to get that air in them and whip them up, right? And they're better. Christians are better when we're, we're whipped up and spurred to good works. And then he says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Aren't you glad? Drop the attend church proof text, and you are here to hear it. <laughs> Instead, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, yeah, some people say, I've heard, I've heard people say this before, oh, that's the, like, go to church proof text. Yes, it is. Let's embrace it as a proof text of that point. And, and let's embrace the goodness of the text, because... When coals are gathered together, they burn brighter, don't they? When, 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 you, when you show such casual contempt and disregard for a penny when it's given to you and you throw it away, right? You demonstrate a lack of understanding that if you just gather 99 others, you have a dollar. Just pick it up. Keep it. We need each other. We are stronger together and can accomplish more and can grow in holiness and Grace, the communion or fellowship of the saints works for our good. The prayers of the saints work for our good as well. I believe that we ought to pray because when we pray, God does things that he would not otherwise do if we did not pray. I believe that that's the reason why James can say the, the prayers of a righteous person accomplish much. In the book of Acts, we see that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And I think that Luke is saying the church ought to pray even though God is sovereign. The church ought to pray even though the situation is going to resolve itself in God's way, according to God's will, in God's power. The church ought to pray because God is sovereign and in control. We don't need to know exactly how it works out in God's economy, you know, how many prayers are needed, how long they need to be. We don't need to, we don't need to worry about that stuff. Instead, what we can do is we can say, God works and therefore I ought to pray. Now it says that Peter was sleeping between two soldiers and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. I love that. It's like, ah, you know, there he is. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. He's like, you know, get up, Peter. That's what he says, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Why? How did that happen? I would say it happened for these reasons. Because God is sovereign. And because the church was praying. And so the prayers of the saints work for our good. There is a modern tendency to say, stop sending thoughts and prayers. And do something. Now I would say this, stop sending thoughts, because that's just annoying to me. Anyway, cranky pastor this morning. 
Send prayers. Because God does things when we pray. And when God does things, he does things that work out for our good. So why would we not pray? Finally, Christ's intercession works for our good. Jesus prays for his own. And when he prayed in John 17, in verse 20, when he prays, he prays not just for the apostles and the believers that he had gathered at that point. Instead, as he's praying, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Think about it. The weakest, loneliest Christian who hasn't had time to get his prayer request on the prayer chain or thinks he has no one to pray for him has one person praying for him all the time. The amazing thing is that it's Jesus. If you could have one person praying for you, who would it be? You know, there may be some prayer warrior in your church and be like, oh, I want her praying for me or I want him praying for me because I know that they pray. I, I, I don't want this to sound overly sarcastic, but I'll, I'll choose Jesus. Amen. I'll, I'll take him because he knows how to pray how he ought, right? You know, that, 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 that statement that no one knows how to pray does not apply to him because he's the perfect human God-man. He's always praying for us. He's praying that we would be kept from sin. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying that we would progress in holiness. He prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he prays that we would make it to the end, that we would persevere in faith. Now, before I say this, this and, and, we, and we draw to a close, Think about this. Jesus says earlier in the book of John, before he prays these things, he says, Father, I thank you that you always hear me and you always answer me. You realize that, that anything that Jesus really asked for, the Father gave him? Even in the garden, he could have said, nope, I don't want to drink this cup. But his theology and behavior are right. And he says, nope, not my will, your will. And then he drinks the cup. Jesus prays that we would be kept from sin, that we would progress in holiness, and that we would be glorified. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Know this. Jesus prays these things for you. That's amazing. Now, it is true that as we hear and review and as we focus on this truth of the scripture, that, that we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that this covers bad things. But I think it's a mistake to go there too soon and to say this applies here instead. I think it is important that we say, God has done good to us. You'll notice the thing that I did not mention, I think, is the greatest good and the greatest blessing that's been given to us. And that is the righteousness of Christ credited to our account as, as sinful fallen people. Because we can think that that's the only blessing. That's, that's the only thing that God's done for us. That he's like, he's like, here, I will give you righteousness. I will forgive your sins. And then you're on your own, kid. 
right? Here's a suitcase and 75 bucks. Go make something out of your life. Bye. That's not the way it works. The scriptures say, if he's given us his son, how will he not with him, with the son, give us all things? There are so many benefits and blessings that come when we know Christ. And God gives them to us graciously and generously because he is kind, not because we always deserve them. Not because we've always got our act together. Instead, he does it because he is abundantly joyful and good. And so my prayer this morning as we close is this, that you would be able to point to the many ways in which God has worked for your good. And when bad things happen, and we have to, to, to do a survey of our soul and to say, how, how will this bad thing work out for my good? We're not just starting from zero. Instead, we're saying, I see the many ways in which God has been there for me and supported me and cared me and on that uh, cared for me. And on the, the foundation of that, I am now able to begin to tangle with this big idea of how this bad, difficult, hard thing will work for my good. So my encouragement is that you would keep this close at hand, recount his many blessings and his benefits, that you would be joyful in him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us. If we were to take an exhaustive look at each and everything that you have done, which is for our good, we would be here for many, many hours. And that would be time well spent. Father, we have scratched the surface of your goodness toward us. I don't believe it's possible for the words of a human being to convey your affections toward us. And that is why Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would know the height and the depth and the width of your love for them. And so, Father, I pray as we've put all these blessings and benefits out on the table, as we've considered all of the goods, I pray that this would sustain us and bolster and encourage us in the midst of our struggles, that we might be able to say, God has done great good for me, and he is for me, and he supports me, and he loves me. It's who he is. It's what he does. And I see it evidenced in his word, in his character, in my circumstances. And Father, I pray that on this foundation of encouragement that we would be able to face the most difficult things and that we would be able to say, like Peter said in the midst of a time of, of trouble when Jesus said, everyone's gone away, will you go away too? Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of life. May we know and appreciate all the good that you've done for us as we consider the way in which even the bad works out for our good. We pray this, Lord. Thankful for Christ. Thankful for the Holy Spirit. Thankful for your kindness as our Father and for the many good things that you do for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together. <clears throat>